that we're about to learn and be challenged and comforted by. I'll read 1 Peter 5, 8 through 14, and then please remain standing as Jeff comes to pray. This is the word of the Lord. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for the grace that's interwoven in your teaching and your character. The fact that we can know you, that we can call you Father, and that we can approach you. You are the hope for our souls. You're a firm hope that can be found in no one else and nothing else. So help us place our confidence in your strength and not in our own resources as we consider Your holy word, would you please move our hearts and minds now into convictions that are in conformity with your will. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so this morning we're going to be talking a fair amount about resisting. And in general, most things in life uh, are difficult to resist or it can be a struggle. I mean, the word itself implies effort. Pushing back can be hard. Um, Typically, we want to concede or please people, take it easy, avoid making waves, and just, you know, we're naturally wired to take the path of least resistance unless it threatens something that's very important to us. Especially when the essential things are threatened, that conjures up great resistance. So think on some of the amazing feats of survival you may have heard of, where people, they endure either the harshest climates or the most physical pain in order just to merely survive. If you were to go and Google, um, you know, amazing survival stories, you'd recognize some of these stories that movies and books have been written about, like Endurance, Unbroken, 127 Hours, those sort of things where there's people that are either stranded or imprisoned, and they resist succumbing to death, and they press on against all odds. Most of these situations, they're completely unplanned, and they're largely unavoidable, and in every instance, the person in distress is trying to minimize pain and end their suffering as soon as possible and at any expense. We know that the will to live, it's a great driver, but there's one even greater that we're going to talk about this morning, and that is the complete assurance and a truth of utmost significance. So this reminds me of the dedication and resistance that was shown by Richard Wormbrand, He was imprisoned and tortured because of his outspoken Christian witness and his proclamation of the gospel to communist Russia. 
or communist Romania. He uh, spent 14 years over two imprisonments, uh, three years of which were spent in solitary confinement in a cell underground without windows or any light. And he was tortured, including mutilation, burning, and being locked in a frozen icebox. Now, Richard had the opportunity to be released if he would only recant the faith and pledge allegiance to communism. He could have ended his pain. But instead, he remained faithful, and he maintained his sanity by sleeping during the day, staying awake at night, and then exercising his mind by preparing and delivering a sermon to himself every single night. He was finally released from Romania in 1964 at the ransom of 10 grand. And upon his release, Richard became a voice for the persecuted church for the rest of his life, despite frequent warnings and death threats. And then a year later, or in 1966, he, um, he testified in Washington, D.C. before the U.S. Senate, during which he's remembered for having taken his shirt off in front of the cameras to show the scars from his torture. And in doing so, he brought to light the underground church to most people's attention. So a year later, the Worm, uh, the worm Brands, they formed an organization called Jesus to the Communist World, which we know better today as Voice of the Martyrs. Richard wrote 18 books, and he was able to recall over 350 of the sermons that he had prepared in solitary confinement. Now, if Richard hadn't resisted Satan working through the communist police, he could have avoided 14 years in prison. He could have avoided torture and separation from his family, including separation from his wife, who was lied to twice by government officials that he had died in prison. If Richard had caved in and recanted, he could have been released. He could have avoided a second imprisonment and lived a normal life. But it's probably fair to say that normal life would not have led to an organization that in 2016 did $50 million in donations to Christian ministry and to persecuted Christians in 68 different countries. If Richard had chosen to take the easy way out and not resist, he wouldn't have the legacy to his name of Bibles Unbound, which has sent 3.6 million Bibles into restricted nations. But perhaps more importantly, if Richard had not resisted Satan, he would have disobeyed Christ and put Christ to shame. He would have rejected the truth that was most precious to his soul and eternal and for his eternal salvation. God's truths are too precious and essential to be surrendered. Therefore, he did resist Satan, and he did stand firm, honoring Christ in prison after his release, and now in eternity in heaven without any regret. In our passage this morning, we are told to resist Satan and to stand firm in the faith. And throughout Peter's whole letter, he tells believers to look upon God's grace and strength amidst their sufferings and Satan's attacks. And Peter preaches that we must stand firm on the gospel and the hope that we have. This exhortation to stand firm, it's central and recurrent to Peter's letter. And it's also how he closes his letter, if you look at verse 12. It says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. When Peter says this is, he's referring to his entire letter, the complete teaching that's found in 1 Peter. That's what we're to stand firm in. So as part of expositing verse 12 and also closing out our sermon series, let's reflect on what Peter means by this or this grace. So the list at the top of your bulletin, it's meant to serve as a summary of Peter's letter, kind of an action form um, on how you would stand firm in the faith. So you can either read it as a summary of the letter 
or you can use them as application questions to consider whether you are standing firm in the grace. So for example, these are some questions you might ask yourself, so follow along by reading the bullets. Am I righteously enduring suffering and living rightly? Do I fixate on God's grace and remember that I am his child? When I am wronged, do I consider the injustice that Christ graciously endured? When I am suffering, do I remember that trials refine my faith and that I am promised an imperishable inheritance? Is my life different from and attractive to the rest of the world? Do I find peace in God's loving strength? And am I standing firm in faith and resisting Satan? So all of Peter's letter stems from these themes of living and suffering in a righteous manner with hope and encouragement from our identity in Christ and our promised future. And that's why our sermon series motto attempts to capture this in four words, from suffering to glory. And in our passage this morning, Peter focuses on another element of how to properly uh, respond to a particular aspect of suffering. And that's specifically on resisting satanic attack. So the main points that we're going to dwell on today are in your outline, and they include understanding that Satan is your personal enemy, Second, seeing the importance to having a firm faith. Third, recognizing Satan's strategies and knowing how to resist him. And fourth, how to endure suffering with hope. However, before we jump into the meat of the text, I want to spend just a few minutes on the letter's closing in verses 12 through 14. There's a few interesting pieces I want to uh, touch on here. So first, why the mention of Babylon? So we know that Peter wrote this letter from Rome. So here Peter is equating Rome to Babylon, who several centuries earlier was the powerful and the corrupt empire that, would ta- that took the Jews captive. So similar to how Babylon had been the enemy and the oppressor of the Jews, for them the Roman Empire was the immoral enemy and the powerful oppressor of the early church. When Peter writes, she who is at Babylon, the she is in reference to the church in Rome, not to a particular individual. So we see Peter simply sending greetings from the Roman church to his audience of believers scattered throughout Asia Minor. Next, I want to make just a few connections uh, regarding the names Silvanus and Mark to their other appearances in the New Testament. So regarding Silvanus, you might not recognize his name, um, but just like Michael becomes Miguel in Spanish, uh, Silvanus in Latin becomes Silas in Greek. So this is the same Silas who accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey. He also ministered in Corinth with Timothy for some time. So Silas is an experienced church planter and church leader. And this wasn't the first letter that he had carried either. He also carried the apostles' letter um, following from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And then regarding Mark, Peter's referring to John Mark, who also accompanied Paul, but on his first missionary journey. And if you recall, John Mark actually ended up um, leaving or abandoning Paul and Barnabas, so Paul was reluctant to list him on the second go-around, so uh, Barnabas teamed with John Mark, and then Paul took uh, Silas. But we know that Paul and uh, Mark were on good terms later because Paul spoke very well of Mark, and actually Mark even spent some time with Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome. So this is the same Mark that wrote the earliest of the four gospel accounts. And although he wasn't uh, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he did spend a lot of time with Peter, enough so that we see Peter referring to him figuratively, figuratively as the son. Uh, Peter's relationship with Mark, it probably began near the end of Jesus' ministry. Uh, many commentators believe that Mark was actually among the disciples and with Jesus when he was seized in the garden. 
And it's, uh, it was also in the house of John Mark's mother uh, that the Jerusalem church often would meet. Uh, and you might recall the story when Peter was miraculously released from prison and uh, he was following the angel and they took him to John Mark's home. And that's where he was knocking on the door and the servant girl was so excited she couldn't believe that Peter was released. So she went and uh, told everyone else and forgot to let him in and he kept knocking. So that was, that was Mark's mom's house. So I think this is interesting because you can see how these early church uh, workers here, they were closely connected and they actually did live life together. They weren't just merely on the same team or with a common purpose, um, but they actually spent years of daily life and ministry together. And it's neat just to see how these early church leaders, they had such strong ties, they truly cared for one another and they're united around the work in front of them. And I think this is indicative, and it's part of the reason why the church has that family-like culture, especially in the early church, which we see reflected here in Peter's exhortation to greet one another with the kiss of love. So the church was affectionate, and it was authentic. It was life together. It wasn't just an organization of traditions that met once a week. So by greeting someone with a kiss, that was something that the uh, ancient world normally practiced among family members. Uh, For us in America, we should not be greeting one another with a kiss if we expect to see each other again. However, we ought to greet each other sincerely and warmly from the heart, not just at the surface level. Each of us needs to express authentic interest in one another and care for one another, because the point is is that believers are considered family, brothers and sisters, so treat one another like uh, brothers and sisters. So that wraps up our background in the closing of the letter. So now we can jump into the meat of the passage, uh, starting at verse 8 for point 1 in your outline. So verse 8 is the only overt mention of spiritual warfare in Peter's letter. And Peter, we know he's personally familiar with Satan's working and his attack, having been attacked himself during Jesus' most dire hour. And Jesus even gave him the heads up. He said that Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And Peter, he was also there when Satan entered Judas, a man whom that he had lived with and traveled with for a few years. And Peter also condemned Satan's influence in the corruption of Ananias and Sapphira. So Peter is actually speaking from firsthand experience about how Satan works in his activity. So what I'd like to do is to consider who is Satan, what are his tactics, and how can we resist him? So first, a little bit of background on Satan that I found helpful. Um, the word Satan is a Hebrew word that means adversary or opponent. And, but when you proceed it with the definite article the, and you say the adversary, then that's in reference to Satan or the devil. But the term devil, that comes from the Greek word diabolos, which actually just means slanderer. So these are not proper names for him. And again, it's, it's so it, Paul actually uses that term diabolos two different times telling uh, Christians not to be diabolos, not to be slanderers or malicious gossips is how it's translated. Um, Satan has a few other names that we use, including Lucifer, Abaddon, Apollyon. Lucifer means light bearer, and it's uh, the Hebrew translation for morning star. Um, Abaddon's a Hebrew word for destruction, and Apollyon's the Greek word for the destroyer. So you see, these are all descriptive terms, not proper names for him. Um, And we know that Satan is not suited in red with a pointy tail. He's a fallen angel that was kicked out of heaven, who was once an angel of light. And as described in Job, he now roams the earth with a host of fallen angels and demons at his command. So in our passage, Peter uses another analogy, and he likens him to a lion. Paul actually uses the same analogy, saying, telling Timothy that he was rescued from the lion's mouth. 
So this is a fitting metaphor for Satan. He's on the prowl because he's ready. Lions, they'll prowl quietly, watching and waiting, and then suddenly they'll pounce on their unsuspecting victims. Typically, their victims just doing their normal thing. We see it on National Geographic. They're eating grass, drinking water, and you shield your kid's eyes. But usually, they're alone and unaware. Lions also, they tend to shield the sick, the young, or the straggling animals. And when attacking a group of sheep, a lion will often use its roar to scatter them in panic, making it easy to isolate just one of them. Groups of lions, they can also work together to use their roar to actually scare them in the direction of another lion and work strategically. So this metaphor is what Peter and Paul have chosen to describe Satan. So we know that he's active, that he's fierce, that he's strategic, and that he hates you. Satan's not just a general adversary toward Christianity who you're likely never to meet. He's your very own personal adversary. So in contrast to the angry mob of protesters that you might see on TV that maybe oppose Christian beliefs, think of it more as a strong-willed activist that is vehemently opposed against you. They're picketing you, not your political uh, party, but your actual character. So Satan here is actively engaged against you. And while he's an adversary against Orchard Bible Church, he's also an adversary against Paul and Alan, Jeff and Kara. Individuals. He's an adversary against you. So what's his end goal in opposing you? What's he want to do? Verse 8 says that this lion is seeking someone to devour. And the term devour actually literally means to drink down. It's the same term that the Septuagint used um, when Jonah was swallowed up by the great fish. So what what the imagery is that you have a beast that is swallowing its prey whole. So basically Satan wants to annihilate the believer. That's his objective. So we also know his strategy. If you look um, at the word adversary in verse 8, that comes from a Greek word that combines two individual words for against and judge. So a judge against you. Um, And that term is used four other times in the New Testament, but each in reference to an opponent in law or in the context of a courtroom. And we see Satan assume this role in the heavenly courtroom in Revelation chapter 12. Reading in verse 10, it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. I want you to think about what this verse means for you. If you're a brother or a sister in Christ, Satan is accusing you in heaven. And recall that Satan accused Job, saying that he had fair weather faith. Satan accused the high priest Zechariah or Joshua in Zechariah's vision, and this is what it says. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So think of Satan accusing you. Imagine being in heaven and Satan saying things about you that are just terrible, but they're true and you cannot deny them. All the gory details of your sin are presented with accuracy and you know you're guilty and you deserve punishment. But here's God's response to Satan's accusations against Joshua. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. And then the angel said to those who were standing before him, that's Joshua, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. How much truer is this for us who are already clothed in Christ's righteousness? 
Satan will accuse me for the wrongs that I've actually done, but Christ will show his hands and his side and say, it's already been paid for. Jeff is free to go. I mean, what a mediator we have. What an advocate. Talk about having the right man on our side. We cannot defend ourselves on our own merit, being clothed as Joshua was with filthy garments. So Christ is the one that clothes us and defends us. So what's our role then? What should we do? If you look at the beginning of verse 8, it tells us we are to be sober-minded and to be watchful. So the term for sober-minded, it means to have clear judgment, to not be intoxicated. And Gordon Fee elaborates on this saying, it's a clear-headedness that comes from a freedom from mental confusion or passion. So being sober and watchful means to be vigilant. Expect to see Satan's schemes against you. You know that he has it out for you. And similar to how soldiers wait and watch while their enemies about, neither should the shepherd or the sheep sleep while the lion is prowling. So be ready and don't be taken in. See his attacks coming and know that it is he who is behind it. Don't be duped by scientific minds that don't acknowledge a spiritual realm. That's exactly what Satan wants. Edmund Clownley, he remarked, Satan, like a lion, may hunt by stealth as well as terror. He cannot ask for a better cover than the illusion that he does not exist. Satan is real, and he's prowling right now, perhaps with his sights on you. So be ready to identify and resist Satan's tactics. And to do this, we have to be sober-minded, watchful, and firmly established in the faith. So we'll discuss Satan's tactics and how to resist them in your third uh, point in the outline. But first, I want to touch on the vital condition of your spiritual state, being firmly established. And this is uh, point two in our outline. In uh, verse nine, Peter says that believers are to resist him, firm in the faith. And then Peter closes out his letter with the overarching exhortation in verse 12 to stand firm, to stand firm in this teaching. So the imagery behind the word firm refers to a solid state or hardness, such as a firm foundation or a solid rock, something that is immovable, it's stable, it's unchanging. And a believer's firmness is not a result of their personal resolution, but of the object that they are building upon. So as you know, the kid's song, it references Jesus' parable, the wise man built his house upon the rock. It's not his house that's firm, it's the rock that he built on that's firm. And that rock is the gospel. Peter is exhorting believers to anchor their faith in the gospel. And Paul, he expresses the same idea in his letter to the Colossians. He exhorts them to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. While a firm foundation is more effective for any kind of aspect of Christian life and ministry, it is absolutely essential for withstanding suffering. So that's a primary purpose of uh, Peter's whole letter. He's basically saying, I know that you're suffering, but stand firm. So there's an action here on our part. This doesn't mean that when the suffering comes, when the storm comes, then try to muster your strength. This requires building and maintaining a strong foundation as a way of life, partially because it gives you a platform to minister from, but mostly because you can rely on it when the storm does come. 
And if you're neglectful during the peaceful times, it'll be too late to build it in the storm. This reminds me of the story Moby Dick, which I'll I'll admit I wasn't a huge fan of. I thought it was utterly depressing. Um, But time and time again, their storm is hit by, or their ship is hit by storm after storm and even whales. Um, But without any uh, ability, without resources, without opportunity for them to rebuild, they don't have a time to stop and repair. So as you know, um, the ship crew didn't fare too well because it was too late. And using physical training as an example, enduring suffering without having a firm foundation would be like entering a marathon without any training and hoping that you'll get by on gel packets and Gatorade. It's just not going to work. So you must prepare for the trials ahead of time if you intend to stand firm. And we all know that we need to condition our bodies for physical trials, so we also must condition our minds and our hearts for spiritual trials. So what are some practices that you can do to become firm in the faith? A portion comes down to head knowledge, but a lot of it comes down to your heart health, which is, um, you know, our focus for the year and also the focus of the Sunday night series that Rick recently wrapped up. So I'm not going to spend much time on it. I'll refer you to um, that series, but also I'll list just a few things to illustrate it. Being in the word and in prayer, uh, meaningfully fellowshipping with and edifying or being with believers to edify one another, practicing obedience, self-control and confession intentionally pursuing learning an actual focused Bible study, being discipled and mentored, and intentionally transforming your mind and setting your mind on things above. And as to the last point, what you dwell on influences who you become. So William James, he said, the greatest discovery of my generation is that humans can alter their lives by altering their attitudes. Ralph Emerson said, a man is what he thinks. And the scriptures and the Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And I think this is why Psalm 1 stresses the importance. It says, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Meditation on God's word firmly roots you in a solid foundation. You become firm in the faith by sinking your peers into the bedrock of the gospel. A firm and settled faith is the only faith that can stand fast while resisting Satan. Which brings us to point three in your outline. Recognize and resist Satan's attacks. One key to resisting effectively is to realize that life is a spiritual battle. To recognize in the moment that some of the relational strife, problems at work, frustrations that are happening, they're happening for a reason. It's part of a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6.12 tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that's people, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, that's evil forces. The point of the spiritual battle isn't just a harassment or a dissatisfied life, but an ineffective and an unfruitful life. Satan's strategy with believers is to either render their witness ineffective or completely absent. And he knows he cannot snatch believers from God's hand. He cannot change their salvation, but he can make them ineffective. And if Satan can do that by keeping believers fat and happy while outside the will of God, Satan will gladly assist Christians in comfortably straying after the pleasures of this world. Satan's focus is on damage control, not trying to retain Christians, but trying to retain people within the domain of darkness. There are eternal souls that are in the balance. So Satan's strategy with unbelievers is quite simple. Keep them from believing, whether by confusion, being jaded, or being self-satisfied. 
And Jesus, he explains this in his parable of the sower. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Paul explains that unbelievers are lost because Satan is the one blinding their minds. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And I think that's a large reason why we have to have compassion. This is Satan working in their life. We believers, we formally belong to the devil. But if you haven't decided to follow Jesus yet, then Satan still has a claim on you. And Satan has a plan on how to gently lead you to hell. C.S. Lewis, he said, The safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, no signposts, and without milestones. To me, that illustration sounds an awful lot like living a comfortable, prosperous life, full of entertainment and absent of careful examination. And there may be times when suffering or a crisis does cause a person to pause and reflect, but this is often swept under the rug with busyness and distractions like Netflix. Satan wants to keep unbelievers from believing or even considering belief. And he wants to make the believers ineffective in reaching. So I want to focus now on how does Satan attack believers and how can we resist him firm in the faith? So from verse 8, we already know that Satan is like a lion who is actively prowling, and he's roaring to instill fear, and his goal is to swallow the believer. So if we continue with this lion imagery, think on who it is that the lion seeks after first. Let's call it the low-hanging fruit for the lions, uh, those who are most vulnerable. And a lot of these statements I'll read I modified from the Life Application Bible. So lions and Satan, they attack the sick, the weak, and the isolated. So be alert to surround those with prayer who are facing illness, who are weak with pressure and stress, and those who are already on the fringes. Lions and Satan, they attack the young. So new Christians and young adults are especially vulnerable. And as a body, we need to lovingly support and encourage them through their doubts, questions, and temptations. Lions and Satan, they attack those who pull away from the flock and their shepherd. So we need to look after one another, create a strong and attractive community. Pay attention and see whose face you haven't seen in a while. Reach out to them. Lions and Satan, they attack the unaware. So we need to be alert and free from anxiety being entangled in our own test of life. We need to be informed and to be in God's word. And we need to humbly depend on God. Those who are prideful and seemingly self-sufficient, those are the ones that are unwary and vulnerable. Lions and Satan, they also attack the fearful. And we know today that the news and media, they're not lacking for any information to produce fear and anxiety. So we must take heart and remember that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So those are some analogies drawn between Satan and lions that I hope are helpful. But we also know that Satan attacks mature believers and especially church leaders. So let's consider what are some of his other strategies. One method is just to lay snares, spiritual traps that are waiting for us to fall into. When Paul writes uh, to Timothy, he speaks of the snares of the devil, even for Timothy. So what are some of these snares? I think 1 John 2 is helpful. In verse 16, he lists three of them. He says, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
So these three snares that are associated with the world, the desires of the flesh, craving pleasure in what you feel. This could be drugs and substance abuse. It could even be holding on to anger and bitterness, being unwilling to forgive. It could be apathy, laziness. Desires of the eyes, craving more of what you see. There's no shortage of material for lust in our culture. And youths are being exposed at such a young age. And for the pride of life, empty boasting and achievements and possessions, it doesn't matter. Each of these things will pull out our heartstrings in different ways for different people. And we need to see them for what they truly are. So don't think of these as merely incorrect fleshly desires originating from within. They are intentional and strategic snares set by Satan himself to ruin you. His purpose is to use these snares to destroy your witness, to devour you. And no one's immune from his ploys. If you remember Demas, he actually ministered with Paul for a few years. Paul's last letter that he wrote said this, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. So that is the first century world, mind you. I would think that our American prosperity has a few more snares than his culture did. There's no shortage of spiritual snares for us. So let's consider now one more of Satan's primary strategies. As you know, Satan's often called the father of lies and the deceiver. So it should be no surprise that Satan attempts to deceive Christians even after they've already chosen to believe. Neil Anderson's book, uh, Victory Over the Darkness, is very insightful on this topic. He says, the major strategy of Satan is to destroy the character of God and the truth of who we are. He can't change such truths, but if he can get us to believe a lie, we will live as though it wasn't true. So you see, Satan knows that believers already are sons of God, already are saints in Christ. Believers, we are this now. We don't have to wait for it. And Neil concludes that the more that you reaffirm who you already are in Christ, the more that your behavior will reflect your true identity. And because Satan knows this to be true, he has a strategy to keep believers from understanding who they are in Christ. So listen to an inside view of his game plan. First, keep Christians believing that they are still slaves to sin. Then the proclamation of emancipation has no practical effect. Keep them from learning the truth and they'll never challenge Satan's control. Second, if they do hear the good news, then keep them from understanding that. Tell them that they are going to be free one day, but not that they're free already. And third, if they do believe they're free, then whisper in their ear, how can you even think that you're no longer a slave to sin when you still do the things that slaves do? And so the key to combating Satan's deceit is to be assured in your identity in Christ and to critically examine every thought and make it fruitful to your faith. Paul described this process in uh, 2 Corinthians 10 on how he fought spiritual warfare. And he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Neil, he illustrates this process. Uh, They took a survey of what Christians struggle with, and he illustrates it with um, how you would think through it in responding to scripture. So he says, to whom are you inferior? You are a child of God seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Why are you insecure? God will never leave you or forsake you. Why do you feel inadequate? You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. How can you feel guilty when there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ? And what is there to worry about? 
you can have peace because you can cast all your anxiety on God who cares for you. These are thoughts that Satan can put in your mind and make you think that they're your own. And we need to process these in light of scripture. There are many great and and comforting spiritual truths to dwell on. And scripture is the key to silencing Satan's lies. One more important observation from our passage on spiritual warfare is that Satan can be overcome. Not only can a believer stand firm, but James adds in chapter 4, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. For believers who stand firm and resist, God will intervene and give the Christian victory, not defeat. But note that the believer must resist. And so the danger for the Christian is not that he's helpless, but that he will fail to resist. And the word resist, it uh, comes from a military term in Greek. It means to strongly resist an opponent. So there's a sense of forcefulness, of pushing back. This isn't a passive disposition of being acted upon, but an active opposition of pushing against. Satan's power over you is only as strong as your belief in the illusion of his strength. You must trust that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So don't swing the pendulum too far and ascribe Satan too much power or ability. He is a formidable opponent, but he is not God. He cannot read your mind. He does not know the future. He cannot be everywhere at once. He can only conjecture based on present circumstances and past experiences. But to that, he is quite cunning. So resist by trusting in Christ as your strength and not in yourself. Hebrews 2.18 says of Jesus, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So look to him. And Romans 8.37 says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Note that it is through Christ, not through your own determination. So if you want to dwell, there's so much more. If you want to dwell on spiritual warfare, I'd encourage you to study the armor of God in Ephesians 6. And there's another uh, related tactic for how we can resist Satan from our passage, but it's a little counterintuitive at first. But it's to know that all Christians suffer from Satan's prowling and his roaring. This is point four in your outline, and it comes from verse nine, if you look at verse nine. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter, he's encouraging these believers and that they were not alone in their suffering. The trials that they were experiencing are normal to Christian life. They weren't being singled out. They weren't a result of being outside the will of God. So like soldiers whose morale is strengthened by knowing that the whole army is engaged in the same battle hardships, Peter is encouraging these believers to press on knowing that the brothers throughout the whole world are engaged in that same spiritual fight. Sufferings are to be expected in following Jesus as this whole series has dwelt on. And when they happen, remember that God has not forgotten you. In fact, as Nate had mentioned earlier, God will use these experiences to perfect your faith. And in verse 10, also paraphrasing verse 10, it says, After a little while, God will call you to his eternal glory in Christ and will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Verse 10 holds two other encouragements to press on as well. First, it is brief. Suffering is brief. And second, God will act and is there. Regarding the brevity of suffering, Paul comments in Romans 8.18, he says, 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Keep in mind, this is coming from Paul, who was shipwrecked, who had been beaten and imprisoned several times. He'd gone through a whole lot. And he also states in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So when Peter and Paul refer to this brief period, they're referring to all of earthly life. And if you think back to Rick Carmichael's sermon, he had used kind of near the beginning a, a long rope and the visual aid of putting a mark on there. Mark represents several decades of our life. And there's no rope that could be long enough to show the whole span of our eternal glory to come. So while believers are still in the midst of earthly suffering, we can also trust in God and the God of all grace. Peter encourages his readers that God himself will restore and repair them. He's not delegating that to someone else. God is there and he is active. He will take all that loss, all that wrongdoing that they have experienced, and he will make it right. And that for eternity. So for believers, our earthly suffering, though it lasts for our whole life here, it will seem light and momentary when compared to the eternal glory that endures forever. But for those who aren't yet following Jesus, what about you? What do you have to lean on, both in times of peace and in times of suffering? When in peace, does the sole purpose of your life, in terms of your own happiness, does that ever feel a bit empty? And for times of suffering, how is it that you can stand up when you don't have a God of grace, peace, and comfort to hold you up? What hope do you have to hold on to when the storms of this life come? If this life is all that there is, then these storms threaten your very purpose and existence. If you don't have assurances and promises of an eternal hope and eternal glory, then what happens to your soul, not your body, but your soul, when this brief life is over? These are important questions to consider, and there are answers to these questions. I pray that you can see that this eternal glory, it can be yours too. It's for everyone. It is free. It's already been paid for. Jesus is holding out salvation, free for the taking. Will you bow your knee to Jesus to take hold of that eternal life? And God is calling you. Will your soul respond to him? So friends and orchard visitors, you need God for your present purpose. You need God for your earthly encouragement. You need God to stand firm amid Satan's attacks. You need God as only he can carry your burdens and anxiety. You need God for your soul's salvation. And you need God to transition from suffering to glory. So Christian and non-Christian, you need God. And please stand as we close in prayer. Father, we uh, happily confess that we need you. We can't save ourselves. Uh, We can't defend ourselves in front of you. We can't resist Satan in our own strength, and we wouldn't want to. So we are glad to depend on you. To know that everything from daily struggles to our soul's eternity is safely within your strong and competent grasp. And this is why we can have peace. I ask that you would frequently remind us to draw near to you, to be in your word. And I am grateful for your mercy and your patience, which we so desperately need. God, you are good. Uh, We praise you for being the God of all grace. We are so blessed that you actively work in us. 
And I pray that you would move and work in those who have not yet believed to draw them into your family so they too can be your chosen children. In your name, amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.